This morning I want to talk a little bit about warning signs. And, and there's warning signs all over, the, all, all over the place, right? When we drive, there's all kinds of warning signs. Like if you come up to a yield sign, what do you do? <laughs> Go fast and hope they move. No, um, you yield, otherwise you might crash and get hit. Um, if you come up to a stop sign, what's the, the preferred method of action at that point? <laughs> to, to no California roll. You stop and you look because it's a safety issue. On the way to school, taking the kids, we go, through a, we go past a number of railroad tracks. And, and one, one of them we almost always hit in the morning. It's a Metrolink, so they're on a schedule, we're on a schedule. And we just always know that at, at about 8 till... Eight, we're going to hit that train. Well, not hit it, but stop for the train. <laughs> because we don't hit it, because these little gates come down, right? And now, in case you're a pedestrian and you don't have any sense, they have little gates for the pedestrian walk, too. But that's a whole different topic. Um, but these gates come down, and you stop. What happens if you don't stop? You die. You get hit by a train. Train versus Durango train wins. And, and so there's warning signs that we heed. The danger comes when we don't see the warning signs or when we don't pay attention to the warning signs, right? On Friday morning, also going to school. We have a lot of excitement going to school. We saw just a tragic incident of of that happening, someone not paying attention to the warning signs. Right in front of the, the kid's school, there's a crosswalk. And there's signs for a crosswalk, and it's painted, and it's all really clear. But as you come in that street, you're heading directly east, directly into the sun. And this time of the year... The sun is right there. And the van in front of us was, had the sun in their eyes, and they didn't see a, a mom and her daughter in the crosswalk. And they're okay, but they did get hit. They, he, he hit them, and, and we weren't going very fast. Praise God for that. And they, they um, glanced off or bounced off to the, the left because they got the corner. And it was a situation where it was a tragic result because he didn't pay attention to the warning signs to the bright yellow signs, to the painting, and, and slow down. And because he was distracted by the sun, he, and, and also one of the teachers there, and he was distracted, and, and praise God that in this case they're okay, but in life, God gives us a whole bunch of warning signs that if we get distracted and miss, the, the judgment or the penalty for that is much greater. Praise God, though, in His Word, He continually gives us warning after warning. Watch out for this. Watch out for this. And it's not because He's trying to be mean. The railroad track crossing guard doesn't come down because they're hoping just to annoy drivers. It comes down to save our lives. The crosswalk signs aren't there just to make us drive a little slower. It's to save lives of people walking in the crosswalk. In the same way, when we study God's Word, And it warns us about pride and the results of pride. That's to change our lives because pride destroys our lives. When it warns us about various sins, when God's Word says, stay away from this, stay away from this, God isn't some cosmic killjoy trying to to get a glee of making your life miserable. He's trying to give you an incredibly full life in Him. And if we follow His commands, that's the case. As we come to the next section in Isaiah, and this morning will be a really... um, big chunk of Isaiah that we're going to fly through. We're not going to, to look at every, every verse this morning as we go through eight different chapters and, and seven different woes. But if you remember where we were in chapters 6 through 12, God was dealing with the issue of trust. 
And with the southern kingdom, Ahaz had, had a, a war coming on him. He didn't know what to do. And, and Joshua, thank you for that song this morning on trust and that God is our anchor. And Ahaz didn't see God as his anchor, and he chose to put his lot in with the Assyrians. And said, well, you know, they'll be nice to me for now, not thinking that they swallow up and destroy every country near them. And, and so he chose not to trust Yahweh, trusted the Assyrians. And judgment would come on him for that. Then we saw in the next two chapters, God used the northern kingdom as an example of they didn't trust God, they're being destroyed, so trust God. And then finally in 11 and 12, we see a beautiful description of the branch that's coming, the Messiah, and that even though people don't trust God, God still loves and God still provides a way for salvation. And in 12, it breaks out in worship. Well, that's sort of where we've been as we come to 13 through 20 and actually a little beyond 20, but today only through 20. We come to what what some scholars have called lessons in trust. Okay, Ahaz failed. He didn't trust. So how do we learn to trust? And God uses the example of, of various nations, seven of them today, of their failures, of their inability to trust God, their sins, and why God judges them. And he uses that as warning signs, not just for the northern or the southern kingdom of Israel, but for you and I as we read it. When we come to a text like this and we go through these seven nations, it's really easy to say, well, that's for them. That, that was for Babylon. That was for Assyria. That was for Moab. And, and we can sort of check out and say, cool, I get a 40-minute nap, and then we go to Sunday school. And, and, um, but here's the deal. This is the inspired Word of God. It is written for our instruction, for our correction, to teach us. There is no word in God's word that is extra and unneeded. And so we come to it, and and I want us to ask a couple questions today. As we hit every one of these countries, every one of these nations, what lesson can we learn? What's the warning sign? What does God hate? That's the first question. What's the warning sign here? Because God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, right? If he hated pride 2,000 years ago, he still hates pride. If he hated idolatry 2,000 years ago, he still hates idolatry. And so we can learn from this and note to self, don't go down that path. But the other thing, that's, that's how we are instructed by these. We're also encouraged by each of these as we see that God is sovereign over all things. No nation is more powerful than God. No ruler is more powerful than God. God and his righteousness and his justice always always wins in the end. And that's comforting, no matter what we're going through, no matter what we're dealing with. There is nothing we face that will usurp God's plans. It's not possible. And as we look through these seven, we not only see the warning signs, but we see the encouragement of God is still in control. He is still in charge. And so we take great comfort in that. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah Isaiah chapter 13. And sort of sketch out where we're going to go today. We're going to go through eight chapters, seven nations. First one we'll spend a little bit more time on because it sets a pattern that most of the others follow. And then we'll go through the others fairly quickly and be looking for those two questions. And then my challenge to you is this week to go home and you read these eight chapters, every verse, because we won't be going over every verse today. I also won't be talking about highlighting today because I can't put all the text up there. And so... You can remember what we've learned about highlighting. Do this section on your own. I may mention some things, but I won't be putting it up. I will be using maps today. 
So I love maps, and it's, it's, it's map day with Pastor Ron. And so it helps us understand what's going on because most of us haven't visited these countries. So Isaiah chapter 13. It starts, The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And so the first thing we'll look at is Babylon, the oracle against Babylon. God powerfully punishes arrogance and pride. God powerfully punishes arrogance and pride. He's addressing here trust in self, which is what pride is. I'm on the throne. I'm I'm great. I can trust myself. Now, it's interesting. Why does he start with Babylon? Babylon wasn't going to be a, a power on the scene for 100 more years. Assyria was the big the big bully at the time. But remember, God, in his incredible wisdom, is writing with an eye to all of the future. And he knows, and he's already revealed to Isaiah, that Assyria is actually not the one that takes out the southern tribes. He's not the one that takes out Judah. Babylon is. And so we start with Babylon. Babylon also um, comes from the name, do you remember in Genesis, a tower? Babel. And it, it, it stood to represent evil and self-centeredness in the world. Man's attempt to be God on his own, which is what happened at Babel, happened in Babylon. And if you study Revelation, Babylon is often used as an illustration for that as well. Babylon was a little bit off to the east. You see on the map there, I put some, some arrows there. Off to the east from Israel and would eventually be a superpower that would um, take over bullying people from Assyria. So that's a little bit of what's going on here. Also, one of the sequences we're going to see in most of these oracles is a sequence of God's judgment and why he's judging them, a glimmer of hope for the future, and then there's still going to be near-term judgment. So those are the three elements. God's judgment, what he hates, hope for the future, probably the distant future, but for now, unless they repent, this is still what's going to happen. Um, A couple of the shorter ones don't follow that, but most of them follow that. One last thing as we start to go through it, we need to remember that these are not necessarily in chronological order. And so Babylon, he's addressing what's going to happen 150 years later. Assyria, he's addressing what's going to happen 20 or 30 years later or within the near future. And so we see a, a, a back and forth between the present the near future, and then we're going to see always going to the, the ultimate end, the end of times for hope. And so just understand that we're, we're jumping around from mountain range to mountain range, if you remember our talk of prophecy. But let's, let's jump in to Babylon. Matyer says, more than any other name, Babylon typifies humankind's will to be its own savior. So we jump in in verse 2, and like I said, we'll spend a little more time on this one, and we get to judgment. This would be the red highlighter down the side. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself, this is God speaking, I myself have commanded my consecrated and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalted ones. And God here is speaking of bringing an army together raising an army against Babylon to judge Babylon for their arrogance, for their pride, for their insolence. And God, as the supreme commander, as the one in charge, can do this. He goes on in 4 and 5 to talk about raising this army. And then in 6 through 9, you see the results of the army. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pains and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. 
their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. God powerfully punishes and judges arrogance and pride and sin. And so the start here is is God saying, Babylon, that superpower? No, their arrogance and pride, I am still supreme. In verse 11, we begin to see why God is mad at them. And this is where we get the arrogance and the pride. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. And he goes on to to talk about his judgment and his fierce anger. See, God hates pride. He is angry at pride. It is an affront to his character. It is an affront to his kingship. Pride says, you are not king. I am king. And so God, as a righteous God, must deal with it. Pride is the issue of who's going to rule, God or us. In this case, Babylon thought they were great. Remember Neb, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 1 through 4? Really, 1 through 4 is the story of Nebuchadnezzar encountering a sovereign God when he thinks he's sovereign king. And it comes to a head in Daniel 4, verse 30. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And we know that he went through seven years as a cow out in the field. And that was his discipline, and God humbled him because of pride. And at the end, he acknowledged only Yahweh is sovereign. Only God is sovereign. So God was dealing with Babylon and their pride, even in Daniel. But here, this will be their downfall. Their pride will be their downfall. Then we go on, and it talks about the coming mode of judgment for Babylon. Verse 17, Behold, I am stirring up Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight in gold. And this is one of those cases. This is prophecy. How does Isaiah know the Medes are going to be the ones that take out the Babylonians? We know 150 years later, the Medo-Persian Empire took out the Babylonians. This is just cool. God's in charge. He knows what's going on. They have no regard for silver. Do not delight in gold. Their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. Basically, all that's saying, you're not going to be able to pay them off. You're not going to be able to bribe them. They're just here to kill you. This is the result of pride. 19 and 20 brings up the pride issue again. And Babylon, the glory of the kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. It will never be inhabited or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherds will make their flocks lie down there. And we see the extent of God's anger. Just how much he cannot stand pride and must judge pride and hates pride. In fact, in the New Testament, we often see the phrase, God opposes the proud. Not just doesn't like the proud, opposes is an active word that says he is actively going to judge them and bring them to their knees. You can read on. It talks about the desolation of Babylon. And that's the judgment. That's what God is upset about. 
Then in 14, 1 and 2, we see the hope. Just a glimmer of hope. And this is looking forward to a future day. In this case, one that's partially fulfilled when they return from exile and then future with the new heavens and the new earth. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and will again choose Israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners will join with them and will attach themselves to the house of Jacob. It goes on a little bit, but we see in the middle of these just desolation and judgment on sin, God always says, there's still hope in me. Trust me. It's all about trust. And in this case, he's saying, pride, I destroy. Trust me and you have a future. It's lessons in trust. Then, interesting, chapter 14, we get a little bit more in Babylon. Um, 3 through 23 is a song for over fallen Babylon. And, and this, the song's written like a, a Hebrew lament, something you would sing at a funeral. So it's a song for the funeral of, of Babylon, but there's a twist in it. When the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you are made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers that struck the peoples in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. So the lament is actually a joyful song. Babylon has fallen. Woohoo! Because now the world is at rest. And who's been oppressing them is killed. There's a couple thoughts as you, as you look through the rest of 14. Verse 9, he, he continues the song by saying, well, how do you think Sheol, how do you think the grave, the, the underworld, the afterlife responds to the destruction of Babylon? And this is just great to see just where their pride has taken them. Verse 9, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones all who were kings of nations. And you get the picture of the, the underworld comprehending what's happening to Babylon. And they come and they greet. And notice, you know, there's, there's all kinds of debate about soul sleep and when we die. This is just a, another real clear passage that they're aware. They're aware of what's going on, those that are dead in their punishment. And in 10, all of them will answer and say to you, you too have become as weak as we. You have become like us. What did Babylon think of themselves? Here. Now all the nations are saying, ha, you're actually here with us. And there's some glee there. And catch this, 11, your pomp has brought you down to Sheol, dealing with the pride and the arrogance. Verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, and listen to this pride, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend from the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And we see an incredible description of just how proud the kings of Babylon were. Probably kings plural, dealing with their their reign, their whole rule, their kingdom. They thought they were above God. We saw that with Nebuchadnezzar. And God humbled him. Just as a side note, sometimes these verses are used to reference the fall of Satan. Um, in, in the Latin, when this was first translated, the, the name that was given for Daystar Dawn was Lucifer. 
And so people have sometimes interpreted this as a story of Satan falling. Probably we should understand this is the Babylonian reign, exactly what it says. Now, could it represent more? It could, because Satan follows the same path. And in Revelation, Satan's reign is tied to Babylon. But probably this is very specific to what's going on in Babylon here. Now, now what do we do with this passage? What do we do with the pride? How do we put this into practice? See, I would think we are just as proud as as the Babylonian Empire. The issue is who's on the throne? Do I put God on the throne of my life and trust Him and follow Him? Or am I going to put self on the throne of my life? See, pride puts ourselves at the center of our creation. I am the extent of my world. Right? And so everything should come to me and everything should be given to me. We see this in society today like I have never seen before. And not that it hasn't happened before, but this is startling. The, the, the way that our culture, and, and especially I'm going to talk to some of you younger people in our culture, expect everything to be given. I deserve free education, free college. I deserve a year or two off when I have a child. I deserve a job given to me that, that it meets all my needs and that I love. I deserve a new car. I deserve this. And, and this, is, this is an incredible, incredible act of pride in our culture. And I've talked about it before. It's why Bernie Sanders was so popular. Because he was appealing to a self-centered, the world revolves around me view of life. And it is pride and it will fall. If we wanted to think of a self-centered manifesto for pride, it would be something like this. I will live for myself and my pleasure. I will not allow God to rule my life because I want to do what I want. I will be on my own throne and not give my time, resources, and life to serve the kingdom because that's inconvenient. I have a right to be treated how I want to, given what I want. Nothing should be hard and I should not have to go through any difficulty. It is right for me to get frustrated and angry when things don't go my way, especially since my opinions are best anyway. I want an award for adulting, even though this is my normal responsibility. My people should serve me and my spouse should meet my needs. I am the center of not only my world, but yours too. That's how pride exposes itself in our culture. And we all are affected by it. And this is a warning sign, the crosswalk sign that we better pay attention to. Otherwise, we're going to run into something. The self-centered manifesto describes what most infants are like. But we're not infants. God wants us to be aware and not put ourselves at the center and put Him at the center. Verse 15 says, but you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. And it sort of ends with, this is just silly. We all die. Why are we trusting ourselves? Why are we proud in ourselves? We die. This ends. We lose everything. What's left is God. The passage then goes on to to talk about the complete and utter destruction of Babylon. And we know that they were, they were taken out by the Medo-Persian Empire, Cyrus, and then Darius. Throughout this, the question is, what are we going to do about our pride? Do we put God at the center of all we do, even, even during the week? Do we surrender to God's will? 
do we really say, not my will, but thine be done? Throughout that whole thing, I don't know if you noticed, if you just start to to mark all the places in blue, the sovereignty, mark all the places where God did this. God commanded this. God made this happen. In in chapter 13, verse 3, verse 4, verse 11, verse 17, in chapter 4, verse 5, verse 22, it's an amazing study to see the sovereignty of God. He is in charge. That pride leads right into the next oracle. And and some have said this next one is, is part of Babylon. It might be, but it deals with a different nation, so I'm treating it separately. The oracle against Assyria. God is sovereign even over our wonderful foolproof plans. God is sovereign even over our wonderful foolproof plans. His plans are greater than our plans. First one dealt with trusting in self. This one trusts in our planning and says, that's not, that's not going to help you either. Verse 24, the Lord of hosts have sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. As I have purposed, so shall it be. This is God saying, Lord of hosts, the, the God of armies, what I say happens, happens. Period. No exceptions. He's dealing with Assyria who thought they, they were the superpower of the time. They were the ones that controlled the destiny of the entire known world at the time. And in verse 25, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Same wording we, we saw in chapter 10 of God delivering Israel delivering Judah, rather, from under the hand of the Assyrians. And then we get to the plans again. This is the purpose that is purpose concerning the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Three different times in talking about Assyria, he says, I will do what I plan, and you won't stop me. And so we see God's sovereignty over our plans. I added wonderful foolproof plans because that's what we think of them sometimes. See, God was greater than Assyria's might, their puny might. He's greater than yours and I's plans. So we want to beware of trusting in our plans, of being content because we've thought it out and we've made our checklist, and it's all going to happen like we want. Anyone ever had a curveball in their week? Where your plans just were, were all thrown away? It feels like every week sometimes. <laughs> Something happens, and it all changes. But God knows. It's His plans. And praise God that He is sovereign over plans. Otherwise, my plans could ruin your plans. Your plans could ruin someone else's plans. And then we're all messed up. No one can ruin God's plans. So the warning here is be careful of relying on our own plans. Be careful of failing to seek God for his plans. We need to intentionally, as we are, as we are looking for how to go forward, any decision we're making, intentionally seek God and say, God, show me your way. Show me your will. We have to intentionally write our plans in pencil and let God have a pen. Because his plans are permanent. I'm not saying we shouldn't plan. I love planning, but they're in pencil and can be erased and are subject to God's plan. That's the oracle against Assyria. Third oracle, which is also in chapter 14, the oracle against Philistia. 
Philistia is to the west. Do we have the map up there? To the west of, of Israel, they were the, the sea people. Philistines is where we'd, uh, we'd see some of that in Scripture. And the lesson here is don't get confident and trust in good times. Only God provides refuge. Isn't it the case that when things are going well, we sort of let down our guard? Like, ah, things are going well. And we trust in that. We don't don't consciously trust in that, but we're trusting in that for our satisfaction, for our happiness, for our well-being. Listen to this. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Rejoice, Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. And so he's saying, don't rejoice. Don't get content in the fact that whoever was oppressing you is killed now. And and there's all kinds of debate about what time period this was. But at some point, the people attacking them were wiped out. And they're like, ah, life is good. Uh, Then it goes on. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. The firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine and your remnant it will slay. 31. Wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. And what would happen is Babylon and Assyria, as they would come and attack, they would go through the fertile crescent. They'd come up through the north and come down on both Israel. That's why the northern kingdom always got it first but also Philistia. And, and the prophecy here is you're content in your, your well-being, you're trusting in that, and you're going to be destroyed. What will one answer the messengers of the nation? The Lord has founded Zion, and in her the afflicted of the people find refuge. And the reminder at the end is the only place where there's refuge is the city of God with God's plans, His way. So that's the third oracle. Don't trust in your plans. Fourth oracle, the oracle against Moab. And if you look at Moab, it's just to the east, across the Jordan. God provides salvation. Don't let pride keep you from surrendering to Him. God provides salvation. Don't let pride keep you from surrendering from, to Him. When this is written to Moab, as we see in the, we'll see in the description, they're in trouble. They're in trouble from Assyria, probably, which are to their east. They're being attacked. They are, they are um, on the run. They don't know what to do. And we're going to find out what happens. And so the, the first four verses, they're humbled and overrun. You can read those later. But verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. And we see a different heart of God. Because Moab had an on-again, off-again relationship with Judah. Remember where Ruth was from? Moab. And so there's some friendliness there. And Moab sometimes um, was a refuge for some of Israel. But God says, my heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath Shelishiah. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. And on the road to Heronim, they raise a cry of destruction. And you see God's heart of mercy for his creation. It goes on. We see they're in serious need of help. The waters of, of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. Um, verse 8, For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches Eglame. Her wailing reaches Berlim. She's in trouble. And so we jump to chapter 16 and we see what they do. And they say, Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert. So around the, the Dead Sea there, maybe even through the Dead Sea, depending on the time of the year, to the mount of the daughters of Zion. 
Jump to verse 3. Give counsel, grant grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcast of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. And it goes on. They're coming to Israel. They come to Jerusalem. They're like, help us. Please, can we take refuge here? Can you help us? It's very interesting. Verse 5 seems out of place, but it's so key. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. So they're coming asking for help. And the very next verse in the prophecy is, there's a throne here. Now, now, what does the throne imply? There's a king here. And what he's saying is, God is, is, is here to help. He wants to bring you in, but he is a just and righteous king. Are you willing to submit to him? Are you willing to surrender to him? See, God won't force us to be saved. We have to accept that, acknowledge that, and surrender to him. And we see in verse 6 their answer. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raising cakes of kir the abundance. They would not take salvation. If it meant submitting to Yahweh, if it meant coming under his rule, then no thank you. And why wouldn't they? Pride. Pride. See, it's hard to ask for help, isn't it? Guys? It's hard to ask for help. Just go in Home Depot and ask where something is. No, it's, it's, it's an adventure. It's a challenge. I know more than the salesperson anyway. You know, now at least we have Siri, so we don't have to ask for directions. Now, I've told this story before. I can remember one time I was swimming and got caught in, at the beach and got caught in a riptide. And about a half hour trying to get in, I couldn't get in. And finally, a lifeguard, young lifeguard, <laughs> came out and offered me the little red thing, whatever you call that. What was that? The lifeline. And I've got to say, I thought about it. I thought about not taking it because that's embarrassing. It means I couldn't do something. That's pride. Now, I I was really tired, so I took it finally and let them tow this young person tow me in. Nothing against young people, but there's a certain amount of pride there. I should be able to do this. That's what's happening with Moab. They, They are on the run. They are being destroyed but they will not accept help from God on God's terms. Oh, we have to be careful we don't do this. We have to be careful that we see a need for God. You know, some of you here may not have ever accepted Christ. Maybe you don't know God, and and I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're hearing. And and you you hear us sometimes talk about Jesus. I know this is the Old Testament, but but really this is pointing to the salvation of God that we cannot save ourselves because we are dead in our sins. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. 
And he says, just accept me and let me be Lord of your life and I will bring you salvation and eternal life. I will forgive those sins and wipe them away. And so many times we resist that because we are proud and don't want to submit to God and admit someone is over us. If that's you this morning, don't let that stop you from eternal life. Because what we're seeing is trusting in self, trusting in our plans, trusting in good times. None of that lasts. The only thing worth trusting in is God. So why not give Him your life and trust Him for salvation and believe that Jesus died for your sins? Oh, let's not be Moab. Let's be warned by Moab. But even for most of you here that know Christ, do we live as practical atheists where we don't live like we need Christ? where we can go a whole week without acknowledging our dependence on God. That's the challenge to us from Moab. Do we need God? Let's move on to the next oracle, chapter 17. Oracle against Damascus and Ephraim. Ephraim's in in brackets there because it's not mentioned at first. But the lesson here is beware of worshiping and trusting the created rather than the Creator. The warning against idolatry and the pride of idolatry. Verse 1, an oracle concerning Damascus. And Damascus was up to just to the north of, of Judah, right next to the northern kingdom. Damascus is the capital of Syria or Aram, same place. They're the ones that banded together and said, let's take on Assyria. And tried to come down and fight the south because they didn't want to join in. So, so there's this coalition. And God is ticked at this coalition because they didn't trust Him. And Ephraim should have been a light to the nations and instead capitulated to the nations and trusted a godless nation instead of Yahweh. And so we read an oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aurora are deserted. They will be for flocks which will lie down and none will make them afraid because no one's there. The fortresses, the fortress will disappear from Ephraim. Wait a minute, weren't we talking about Syria? Now Ephraim's the, the northern kingdom. That's the tribe that represents the northern kingdom. And God is lumping them together and said, you want to come under them? You want to trust them? You're going to get the same fate. Because they didn't trust God. They will disappear from Ephraim and the kingdom of Damascus and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel declares the Lord of hosts. And in that day, the glory of Jacob will be brought low, the fading glory. And he goes on to talk about what's going to happen to them. They'll be destroyed. But then in verse 6, there's a little bit of hope. You can put a little green there. Some gleanings will be left in as when an olive tree is beaten. And olive trees are huge trees and they would take giant sticks and beat it and get get the olives down. But they couldn't reach the very top. And so they'd leave those for the hungry and the poor and the desolate to eat those as they fell. And it's a promise that says there's still going to be a remnant of life. There's still going to be hope. And in fact, in verse 7 and 8, we see that future hope in that day. Someday in the future, man will look at his maker and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. And this is where we understand the problem. They will look to the maker He will not look to the altars, to the work of his hands. He will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense. They were trusting in what they made, the idols they made, instead of Yahweh. 
They were trusting in the created instead of the creator. How stupid is that? And we've talked about that. A man takes a piece of wood and with half of it he creates an an idol and bows down to it. And the other one he uses for firewood for his dinner. It's silly. And Yahweh says, trust me. Trust me. But they don't. Sixth oracle. The oracle against Cush. And Cush is down below Egypt, south of Egypt. Um, it's, it's in the headwaters of the Nile. And um, probably where biblical Ethiopia was. Not, not current day. Current day Ethiopia is a little further south. But b- biblical Ethiopia. So this is where the Ethiopian eunuch in the New Testament would have come from. The lesson there is God is always working. He is always working. So instead of taking matters into your own hands, listen for God's message and look for His work. And he starts, all land of warring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors to the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, which is describing them, to a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land and rivers divide. And it goes on from there and says, tell them what God says in verse 4. The Lord said to me, I will quietly look down from my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, like the cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. For before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hooks. And spreading branches, he lops off and clears away. And it goes on from there and just sort of walk us through it. The first part is this country, Cush, was sending ambassadors up to make alliances. They were trusting in alliances. They were trusting in the work of their hands. Oh no, what are we going to do? We better do this. And, And God said, no, no, no. Actually, Judah, you should be sending ambassadors to them to tell them about Yahweh. To tell them that if they worship Him, He is God. He will be your refuge. Throughout this, we see God's love for the nations. He wants people to turn to Him. Verse 4, when it says, I will quietly look for my dwelling like clear heat and sunshine, cloud of dew and the heat of harvest. He's bringing up things that are at work, but we don't think about. Today is going to be over 100 degrees in Anaheim. Woohoo! That's heat from the sun. Do you see it? Well, actually, at that point, you might see little waves or something. You, you don't see it, though, right? But you feel it. And it's saying you don't always see God at work, but He's always at work. Or like the dew, you don't even, we don't even realize that, oh, wow, that's amazing that there's dew. It's helping plants grow. And the idea is God is at work in every situation, m- controlling and moving things even when we don't see it. And so let's stop taking matters in our own hands and figure out what God is doing and join Him. Listen for Him. And finally, the last oracle. We need to wrap up. Chapter 19, the oracle against Egypt. And Egypt is above Cush. It would be a superpower as well a little later. Egypt was a country of of wealth, of prosperity, because of the Nile River. The Nile River provided agriculture. It provided, as it overflowed each year, would provide new topsoil and nutrients. And so they were considered the the center of wisdom, the center of commerce in their time, in, in their time of glory. And so it starts in, ver- in chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt, and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence. The heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. 
He's reminding them God is above all things. He's riding on the clouds. He's powerful. He's more powerful than your helpless little idols. And he goes on in in the next sections, two through four is a section that deals with idolatry and and deals with um, their gods and that God is more powerful than their gods. And then verses five through ten deals with a trust in money. And it says your, your river is going to be dried up. The Nile that you rely on everything for, it's not going to help you. And all the industry around it. So don't trust in economics. And then in verses 11 through 15, he says don't trust in your leadership, in your government. They're foolish. Even your wisdom looks foolish to God. Don't trust in man's wisdom. And so in this oracle, we see your idols, your money, your wisdom are foolish and cannot save you. We trust in stuff all the time for joy, for happiness, for fulfillment. And this one says don't trust in stuff. That doesn't last. The warning sign is clear. Especially at the end, we've talked about this. Pastor Andrews talked about this. Don't trust in government. Don't trust in leadership. The election in November is not our saving grace. Whoever is elected doesn't surprise God and doesn't change that He's on the throne and the United States is temporary. And I I love our country. Don't get me wrong. I'm patriotic and I'm going to vote. But I'm not going to worry because God is on the throne. And the lesson from Egypt is don't trust in man. Don't trust in wisdom of man. Trust in God. Seven oracles. We'll look at a little bit of, of the, the hope of the future next week as we, as we look at some more oracles. Seven trust lessons. Seven warning signs. Don't trust in self. Don't trust in your plans. Don't trust in good times. Don't trust in idols. Don't trust in man. Don't trust in stuff. The only thing left is the sovereign God. Let's learn from these nations and not go down those same paths. Oh, Lord, it is glorious to praise you and to praise you together as your people. All praise and glory and honor and strength be yours because you are our salvation. In nothing else can we find fulfillment and satisfaction and salvation except you. Lord, challenge us. Rip away anything else we trust in this week. And that's a scary prayer to pray. Rip away the things we trust in that are not you. And force us to trust you, God. Because then there's, it's just glorious. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.